to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 1 through 24. We continue in our sermon series in Matthew titled, Look at the Savior. We want to see Jesus. We welcome those visiting with us here today as well. Hear now the word of God. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom 
than for you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Certain dates, hinges of history, as one scholar calls them, are really important. A before and an after. Before August 1914, this author says, all of Europe was ruled by the grandchildren of Queen Victoria. Three great imperial dynasties. By the end of World War I, the world was changed. Before October 1929, a lot of people were wealthy. After that, not so much. Or we think of December 7, 1941, Pearl Harbor. 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall. More recently, September 11, 2001, the terrorist attacks. We could think of a number of things in the last three years, maybe to add to that. Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Matthew of a hinge that's even greater than those, of a change in the history of redemption. The kingdom of heaven, he says, has come. John prepares the way. Jesus inaugurates the kingdom, and yet it won't be consummated until his return. The question is for you and I, as for those in Matthew 11, is how do we respond to this gospel ministry of Christ? First, John the Baptist's doubt. The 12 had just been sent out on a missionary tour, the 12 apostles. We're not told of the success or lack thereof. Isn't that interesting? Jesus wants you and I and them to remember Christ is the focus. And Christ commissioned them and he said, you're going to be betrayed, you're going to suffer, and you're going to die for the sake of Christ. But they cannot harm you eternally. In me you are secure and love forevermore. John the Baptist now is a case study in that very thing. We hadn't heard of John here since Matthew 4. Do you remember where he was, kids? That's a long time ago. Where is John right now? He's in prison. One of the Herods, one of those many sons of Herod the Great, had a woman that he loved that was married to his brother that was also his niece. It's wicked. It's evil. John the Baptist preached about the sin of Herod and Herodias. Herod didn't like it. Herodias didn't like it. She got Herod to throw John into prison. It's a place you can still visit near the Dead Sea. It was a place that Herod had built as like a summer retreat Minnesota, think cabin, North Shore. He would go there to hang out in the summer. A very spacious palace. Below, in the depths, is a dungeon, the ruins of which remain. John is down there, chained up in a dungeon. He's been there for close to a year. Herod would go down from time to time to listen to John preach, not because he really wanted to hear, but because he was kind of intellectually maybe stimulated a bit. And you remember from the rest of the Gospels, John never got out of that prison. Salome, Herod's stepdaughter, asked for John's head on a platter. And that's what happened to the man who prepared the way for the coming of the Lord. 
John is here for close to a year at this point. He hears all these things. What things? Well, the things of what Jesus has been doing. Healings, raising the dead, miracles. His friends were up about 90 miles away in Capernaum. They bring the news back to him in this dungeon. And how does he respond? Are you, Christ, the one who is to come? He has doubts. He's going through what Psalm 88 talks about, a dark night of the soul. His circumstances were such, in prison, that his struggles and trials made him wonder if Christ was really the Messiah. Beloved, have you ever visited Doubting Castle? Do you know that, kids, from Pilgrim's Progress? Christian and hopeful are on their way to the city of heaven. They go off the highway of the king. The path is much easier in another place. And they are led to Doubting Castle and giant despair. And Bunyan illustrates this brilliantly, saying, Christians go through these seasons. You might be in one now. You might have been in one. One might be yet to come. Doubt is a struggle to believe. Doubt is not unbelief. Unbelief is an act of the will that refuses to trust and obey Christ. Doubt, as Oz Guinness says, is a state of mind between faith and unbelief. A heart that's divided, fogginess, grayness, everything seems disorienting. When the Bible speaks of doubt, it's talking of a believer. Moses, Gideon, the apostles, John, the Psalms. Sooner or later, every Christian will feel this claw, this unsettling soul grip. It's real. Elijah, to the point of almost wanting to end his life. John the Baptist illustrates it right here. You might think, well, if I'm a real Christian, I won't deal with this. That's not true. Doubt which is ignored can be a huge problem. Doubt which is faced honestly can be a point of great growth for you, dear brother and sister. It might be intellectual doubt. It might be circumstantial, related to your suffering, your life, your marriage, your tears, your doubts. God, can anything good come in this marriage I'm in? It feels awful. I'm just angry. That's the way I am. It's my personality. I'm stoic. Nothing's going to change it. Deal with it. God can help, loved ones. We need to, first of all, be honest about our struggle and our doubt. It often happens, as in the case of John, when personal tragedy comes. This is the man who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the man who baptized Jesus, his cousin. He grew up with him. This is the man set apart by God from his mother's womb. This is the man Malachi prophesied would come. This is the man who is the Elijah to come. Not reincarnate, but the promise the Old Testament made. Your life is hard. The world around us is evil. 
God is giving them up around us to the lusts of the flesh, Romans 1. That's the world we're in, Romans 1, world. There's sin in our hearts. Is the Lord real? Is he with us? That's John, and that might be us today. John couldn't get out of the cell. He sends two disciples, Luke tells us, to go. Ask Jesus, are you the one to come? That's right out of Zechariah 9. The one to come is the Messiah. Jesus' healing and raising the dead are one thing, but the Romans are in charge, the country is overrun, and I'm in jail. See what's happening to him? He has false expectations of Christ. If Jesus is the Messiah, why are there evil people in this land? Why don't I get freed from this dungeon? Jesus, in fact, why don't you come visit me? Christ never did as far as we know. Why don't you come up here and, like you've raised that dead boy, just kind of let me come out of prison? Where's the fiery judgment, Jesus? This is John who preached the axe at the root of the tree. Where's that? Bring it down. Jesus, if you are the Messiah, bring it. He's shaken. He failed to understand the first and second comings of Christ are not all one coming. That in his first coming, Christ comes to suffer. He comes to die. He comes as a servant to conquer sin and Satan and death, to fulfill the law in our place. That all the signs are signs of the Messiah to reverse the effects of the fall. We must not miss that. Yes, he will return. Yes, he is the coming judge. Yes, he will set all things right. All evil will be punished. But his servanthood, his laying down his life for sinners, is what draws sinners by the Spirit to trust him. That's the message of the gospel. John, in his sorrow and doubt, was missing. Do we have false expectations of Jesus? We can. Maybe someone said, you become a Christian, things will get better for you. Well, as Sinclair Ferguson says, it's a wonderful thing to be a Christian, but now, by the Spirit of God, you're in a fight against sin that you weren't in before. Being a Christian doesn't mean that life will go easier for you. It doesn't mean you'll be healed or you'll be rich or successful. Some Christians are in the providence of God. Others aren't. Becoming a Christian means you are united to Christ in his sufferings, in his death, and yes, in his resurrection. How is Jesus going to respond? John's disciples bring him the doubt of John. Do you see what Jesus does? Where does he go? He goes to the Bible. He goes to the prophecies of the Old Testament. He goes to Isaiah. Go and tell John, the blind see, lame walk, lepers cleanse, deaf hear, dead are raised. He says, I am the Messiah that all the prophets anticipated. But he doesn't quote from the end of Isaiah 61, verse 1, even as he quotes from the beginning. He doesn't say, I've come to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. 
even though he did come for that. Isn't that interesting? Where's John right now? He's bound. He's in prison. Jesus didn't say that to him because, why? Was John thinking, if he says that, that means I'm out of here. I'm free. John needed to believe what Jesus had done in fulfillment of his word before he could come to understand what Jesus was doing in his life, one man says. He needed to interpret his experience in light of the word of God, not the word in light of his experience. Jesus says, blessed are those who are not offended by me. A crucified Messiah on a cross was a horrible offense to the first century people of Israel with Romans still in charge. A Messiah who comes to heal and reconcile rather than conquer the Romans was an offense to many. Calvin says, we must wage war with our offenses. Here's a personal application he makes. You and I, this week, were you offended by someone? Were you genuinely offended, was I? Or did we just take offense? One man says, someone once took offense at me for saying good work, when in his view I should have said very good work. We often take offense when none is intended, don't we? We need to test ourselves in this, Calvin says. We need to pause as well where Scripture offends us. Does the Bible question one of my treasured opinions that I'm so certain of? Does the Bible question a sin that I really nurse and cherish and love? Jesus probes all of our opinions, and there are many of them, because he wants to dismantle some of them. What's another word for this? Humility. Christ comes to humble us, that we would die to our pride. Lord Jesus, make me teachable. Help me to be humble. Help me to bend my will to yours. May your word, by your spirit, sanctify my thinking in my heart rather than me leading with my opinion. Are you in a struggle with doubt today, like John? If so, bring it to the Lord. Don't bury it. Jesus will answer. He will help. Cry out to him. Confess your struggle. He knows our weakness. Meditating on the doubt won't help. Crying out to God will, along with turning to God's word. When we struggle with doubt, we need to be fed on the Bible. Our faith needs to be strengthened with Scripture. John, of all people, knew the Bible. He was a prophet. But there's something important in hearing God's promises even when we are familiar with them, isn't there? John knew them in one way, but he'd forgotten them in his experience and his misinterpretation of his experience in light of the promises of God. When we allow our experience over the Bible to dictate how we think and live, what often happens? We sink. We grumble. We complain. We have a pity party. We think about ourselves. God, help me to see your grace is sufficient. Your power is made perfect in my weakness, in my doubt. 
God's grace is sufficient. Not the thing that I'm whining about, but his grace, Christ himself. Bring your doubts to God. And remember that in one thing that Jesus says to John, he also says, I'm not going to tell you everything you want to know. Isn't that interesting? Jesus doesn't tell the messengers to tell John why he didn't bring fiery judgment. He gave no hint or hope that John would get out of prison in this life. That's important to us too. The secret providence of God. We aren't going to turn to the Bible and find a secret insight to explain every particular struggle and the reason for it. But we are brought to trust God in it. Bring your doubt to God. Bring it to a spiritual friend that is trustworthy. You're not meant to live the Christian life alone. Jude 23 says, be merciful to those who doubt. Have you brought doubts to someone and been pummeled? Have you pummeled someone when they brought doubts to you? In our experience, we might say, yeah, maybe I have. God, forgive me. Help me like Jude to be merciful to those who doubt, to have a listening ear, a heart of compassion like Christ in his compassion. Beloved, the worst thing you can do today is keep your doubt to yourself and bury it and sink deeper into the dungeon of giant despair. Bring it to the Lord. Bring it to friends. Remember Christ's love to you, his promises to you. What are the expectations and the responses that we have? First, John's doubt. Secondly, the crowd's apathy and confusion. John the Baptist's disciples go away, and Jesus speaks to the crowds. A theme throughout Matthew is crowds cannot always be trusted. You know that, don't you? They're fickle. They go along, just think of our own experience in our own city over the last few years. One person does this, and people just follow. They pile on. Crowds, in and of themselves, can be very dangerous, actually. Jesus says to the crowds, where'd you go out to John? And what'd you go out there to see? A reed in the wind that's swaying around? To us, that doesn't mean much, but John was preaching by the sea of reeds. So, kids, think of a cattail in the fall that's kind of limply, kind of being thrown back and forth by the wind. Is that what John is? Is he a people pleaser? Does he tell you what you want to hear? Is he back from this view to this view, and you never know where he's at, and he's shifty, and he's... Vague and he's foggy and wimpy? Is that John? No. He's fearless. Did you go out to see a guy that had just been to the Mall of America and had found the best clothes? Nothing wrong with good clothes, nothing wrong with nice clothes. Is that John, though? Had he been to the Mall of America and then went out to preach in the desert, kids? No. What did he wear? He had ratty clothes, camel's hair. What did you kids have for breakfast today? Locusts? No. Oatmeal? Eggs, maybe? John ate locusts with wild honey. This is a weird dude. Where would you go to find fine clothes? The palace. Who's in the palace? Herod. Who is imprisoning John? Herod. You went out to see someone unwavering, determined, who would not flinch, 
in fulfillment of the calling God gave him. And that, loved ones, is what makes John's doubt so staggering. This was a man robust, strong, faithful, clear. Would this man be in a situation where he is doubting Christ? Yes, he is. And Alistair Begg says, we are all like that. Beloved, our best moments are the precursor for our worst fall. In our moment of greatest usefulness, we may become a disaster in its aftermath. Begg says, Thankfully, one shaky period for John in the jail did not negate his ministry. He didn't fall away. He shook. We all shake. But by God's grace, we don't topple. Why? Because the central basis of your assurance in salvation is not how much you love God. It's not how obedient you are this week. It is how much God loves you in Christ, how his heart is set upon you in the gospel. Who'd you go out to see? A prophet? Oh, yes, way more than a prophet, Jesus says, Matthew eleven nine. 9. There had been no prophet in Israel for 400 years. That's a long time. John is the greatest of the old covenant prophets. He's the last. He's the hinge. The hinge of history. Among those born of women, none is greater than John. Greater than Moses, Abraham, Elijah. That's an amazing statement. Jesus says that of no one else as far as we know. He goes on. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. You're thinking, what's Jesus saying? Is he the greatest or is he the least? You who live after the cross have greater revelation than John had. He is reminding you, Christian, of all you have in Jesus. You know what John didn't yet know. John saw dimly. He saw like he's on tiptoes, like the prophets, prophesying of the grace to come, not yet knowing exactly what it would look like. You know Christ fulfilled the law for you. You know he died on the cross. You know he said it is finished. You know he paid for every one of your sins, past, present, and future. You know he rose from the dead on the third day. You know he ascended to heaven today, especially. You know he reigns there and rules there and prays for you there and loves you from there and has all authority there. You know that, Christian. We struggle with doubt, but the word of God tells us this is true. You know he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Is there anything better than that? God's word tells you. You are defined not by your hardship today, You are defined not by your struggle with sin today. Your identity is in Christ today, who loved you and gave himself for you. You belong body and soul by faith to him. That is a great promise for you today, Christian. And for me, it helps when we are tempted to apathy. We're all tempted there. Look at verse 12. This is one of the hardest verses, by the way, to interpret. So if you want to talk more, you can come to me after. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, 
and the violent take it by force. What is going on there? Either Jesus means the kingdom and its messengers, like John, suffer violence and violent men try to control it, or he means we cannot enter the kingdom of God half-heartedly, but with zeal and conviction. You may say I'm being a coward here, but I will side with those who say there's some of both going on here. I think the immediate context is the first. What has Herod done? He has seized John. What did his father do? Had the boys, two years old and under, slaughtered in Bethlehem. What happens when the gospel is preached where it has never been preached before? Often, violence, rioting, Paul at Ephesus, hatred of the message, violent unbelievers trying to seize and take control and not realizing that God in his kingdom has power over all. That's the first part of this. But the context, I think, also says number two has an application. Do we enter the kingdom half asleep? Do we just kind of doze our way through life and then just get zapped up to heaven? Jesus tells us your faith in justification rests and receives what Christ has done. In sanctification by the Spirit, you are active. There is to be zeal and courage and prayer that God would help me to be a bold witness for Jesus, to deny myself, to take up my cross and follow him. He just said that, didn't he? A chapter earlier. Why is that apathy and confusion a part of what's going on here? Because of what Jesus says in verse 20 to 24. Someone can hear John preach, see Jesus perform miracles, see the dead raised, and have no at all effect in their life and not care in the least. Totally apathetic. That's what Jesus says as he says there's a woe, a divine curse, a covenant curse on Chorazin and Bethsaida. We don't know much about these towns other than Andrew and Peter and Philip are from Bethsaida. And Jesus did miracles there, and they didn't care. Apathy. Tyre and Sidon are mentioned. Proud, cruel, money-mad, unbelieving towns in the Old Testament who sold the Israelites into slavery to the Edomites, Amos 1.9. Wicked, seducing, arrogant, And yet Jesus says they would have repented long ago if Christ came to them. But Chorazin and Bethsaida, who had greater revelation, didn't. A tremendously sobering warning. Jesus says, Capernaum, how about that place? Where Jesus spent a lot of time in his Galilean ministry. Where he called his disciples where he preached the bread of life in John 6. These Capernaums loved themselves. They said, we're going to be lifted to the sky. We are great. We are it. Jesus says, no. In your pride, you will be brought down to the depths of hell. Isaiah 14 comes to mind. The king of Babylon is boasting, I'm going to ascend to heaven, the king says. He will descend to hell. 
Capernaum is full of outwardly decent citizens who rejected Christ. And then he brings Sodom in. Sodom, the outward immoralities, the debauchery. Jesus says Capernaum's eternal fate is worse than Sodom's. If I said that and that wasn't in the Bible, you might say, that's not right. Do you see it there? Sodom is destroyed by fire. What city could be worse off? As one man says, a city, a place that hears the gospel but rejects Jesus. Judgment against the abominations, the wickedness, the evil in Sodom is exceeded by the spiritual apathy of Capernaum. The danger of being a Pharisee, of having all the right outward answers and not trusting in our hearts in the Lord, that is more repulsive and caught sight than the most idolatrous pagan city imaginable, Sodom and Gomorrah. That is a warning to pastors, to elders, to church members across the world. Today, Capernaum is a deserted site. The ruins are there. The city is gone. In some ways, a picture of the fulfillment of what Jesus says right here. Eric Alexander says, some of Jesus' harshest words are for towns where he spent the most amount of time in his ministry. They didn't attack Jesus. They didn't criticize him here. They just ignored him. They went on with life. God sent his son. Yawn. That doesn't mean anything for me. As Alexander says, to Scotland 20 years ago, I say to us today, this kind of reaction to Jesus can happen right here at Emmaus Road. Where we let the word of God roll off our back like water off a duck where we just ignore the word, where we don't care. God, keep me from this apathy, this outward saying the right things, but not trusting God, not worshiping God, not repenting of my sin to God, not loving God. Someone once said, None are so unholy as those whose hands are desensitized with holy things. What does he mean? It's a dangerous church, a dangerous thing to come to church, he says. We can go spiritually brain dead. We sing songs, our brain waves are just somewhere else. Harry Reader died this week. He spoke about Francis Schaeffer. He said, look around you in this room. What do you see? He reminds us there are Forces of evil that want to distract us, to help us, uh, to to work against us, to, to think about the Lord, to think about anything and everything but Christ. To pray verbally but not to believe. To say a confession of faith is like a anesthetic. To sing words without believing in our heart. Oh God, help me. The enemy is working to keep us from thinking about our sin or about our Savior. And the severest judgment here falls on those who reject the gospel. That's Jesus' point. On churchgoers like us. Visible members of the covenant community. 
who don't really trust Jesus. On listeners who hear but don't really hear with ears to hear. Who don't believe. Who are hypocrites. Who are casual attenders. Who harden their hearts. Oh God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on Emmaus Road. Third, how does Jesus' ministry responded to by the Pharisees? Now Jesus says in verse 16 through verse 19, I want you to think about something you hear in the streets all the time. In that context, what would they hear? Jesus loves to gather in everyday examples to illustrate his point. In that day, what would kids do? Kids, today you play baseball, you climb trees, you do gymnastics. In that day, a lot of the kids would play weddings and funerals. So they get in the street and they play, I'm going to celebrate a wedding, or I'm going to grieve at a funeral. Jesus says, some kids would say, I don't want to do either one. I don't like the wedding game. I don't like the funeral game. I'm going to sit over here and pout and not join you. Jesus brings that up to illustrate the current generation of those he's speaking to, including Pharisees and others in the crowd who didn't believe. He says, you're like a child who doesn't like Jesus or John. Isn't that interesting? John, he is a boring, harsh guy. He doesn't drink wine. He wears weird clothes. He talks about judgment all the time. He's too morose. I don't like John. Jesus, he drinks wine. He sits with sinners and tax collectors. John is dealing with funerals all the time. Jesus is always dealing with weddings. I don't like either one. Jesus says, nothing pleases you people. And here is Alexander again. This is an illustration of the spirit of criticism. Discernment, wise and balanced criticism is something we should all engage in and be glad to receive. But a critical spirit, he says, is a different thing. That's what Jesus is getting at. The critical spirit is the kind that shrinks our life. There's no pleasing a critical spirit. It's sour, negative, an attitude that is down about everything and everyone with the exception of one. Who's that one? Me. Because in my critical spirit, I am right. No one else sees it, but I do. My spouse doesn't get it. My kids don't get it. My coworker doesn't get it. My church doesn't get it. I get it. It's the pride Jesus is warning about. Beloved, we need to pray where that spirit of criticism is in our hearts. God, give me your spirit to die to this sin. And it's all the more dangerous if I don't see it right now. Because it's there in our hearts. We know it. We come to church. Yes, it's good to always seek improvement. But do we come to critically taste test the music, the carpet, the sermon, the way someone looks at me or doesn't look at me. Do you see how that can happen? And what do we miss? We miss the gospel. We miss loving each other and reaching out to each other because we're just critically thinking about me. Why isn't it more this way? 
Why is he still preaching today? He's going long today. Yes, he is. What's wrong with him? Christianity is not a game. What is this generation like? That's a question Jesus asked them. He asks us. What are we like? Apart from Christ, we are perverse and foolish. In Christ, we are wise for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus says in chapter 11, verse 19, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Or Luke says, by her children. The divine wisdom of God, which sent John as the forerunner, sent Jesus as the Messiah, is vindicated, he is saying, in the experience of God's children, his people, those whom he loves, his treasured possession. That's you, beloved. These aren't the foolish children who don't like the funeral game and don't like the wedding game, but these are the children who are humbled and justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These are those who see their need of repentance and their only hope, as we just sang, in life and in death, being in Christ. How do you respond today? How do I respond? Beloved, I want to encourage us to bring our doubts, our apathy, our critical spirit to Christ. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Sanctify me more and more. Make me more like my Savior who says to me, as we will see next week, come to me, Jesus says, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's respond.